If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Welcome. Today, you're going to hear me talk to Denny Emerson. Denny Emerson is an old dog in the horse industry, showing us that it's never too late to learn new tricks. Denny's life with horses began with the pure pleasure of riding bareback around his neighborhood on his first little horse, a paint, imaginatively named Paint. <laughs> then he went on to ride Morgans in saddle seat and endurance races, and eventually to success in international sport that included a team gold at the World Championships in 1974. Born in 1941, he was taught by a generation who grew up with horses. Horses plowed our fields, horses drove us to town, horses were used in war. As the world of horse sport exploded in North America, Denny was on the leading edge, learning from captains and colonels in the high-pressure world of international three-day eventing. Throughout it all, there was an attitude of, don't let him get away with that. You gotta show that horse who's boss. Hmm. As Denny says, I drank the Kool-Aid. I was a product of what I was taught as a kid. It took a long time to outgrow that. Like most successful athletes, he brought a lot of intensity into the arena. Denny was very successful, bringing home medals in eventing for the U.S. team and competing and coaching successfully to the advanced level until he was 60. The last horse Denny rode at the advanced level was a hot, worried little mare named Speed Axel, who proved to be a catalyst for change as he looked for another way with horses and handed over her reins to me 20 years ago. Now Denny espouses a slower, kinder, gentler way with horses. He's gone back to his roots, riding for pleasure, enjoying the scenery of his beloved Vermont countryside from the back of a Morgan horse, and writing about what he'd wished he'd known earlier, in hopes of helping others evolve and avoid some of the mistakes he made with horses over the years. It's a powerful thing to watch a powerful person own their past and make changes in their life. Join me for a conversation about change, and about what was the catalyst for Denny, about his Thoughts on the anxiety threshold and the importance of staying below it, about making haste slowly and what defines a good trainer. He talks about the trap of letting your agenda own you and about how he lives now by the Maya Angelou quote, do the best you can with what you know, then when you know better, do better. You can look for daily inspiration on Denny's Facebook page and read his books. He has three of them. How Good Riders Get Good. Know better to do better. Mistakes I made with horses so you don't have to. And begin and begin again. The bright optimism of reinventing life with horses. You can find those at the links on uh, the show notes. Join me now for our conversation about change and things we wish we'd done differently. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I wanted to start off sharing some of our story with our listeners about um, a fabulous little mare named Speed Axel and our time together 20 years ago. 
So Denny and I haven't seen each other. This is the first time we've seen each other face to face in 20 years. Right off the top, I want to thank you for believing in me 20 years ago and for trying to put me back on the map. So I was coming back after a bit of a life shit kicking after my fiance had taken a literal kicking and suffered a blow to the head, a major head injury, and life went sideways. And um, I met Denny at Fair Hill in, I think that was 1999, um, and was still wanting to do it. I was trying to be sensible and go back to school. I really wanted to do it, but I couldn't see the road there. And Denny could. So thank you for sending me initially some contacts and some horses. You set me up with Noel and some hot horses that had maybe some trauma or were maybe a bit misunderstood. And at that point in my life, I seemed to be able to get along with them and connect with them and give them that sense of safety and security and did really well on them. And then there was one day, I didn't know what you were planning, Denny. You took me out on a hack when I think I was there to see Noel's horses and you put me up on speed axle. And uh, you said, don't judge her when she comes out of the barn. She comes out of the barn a bit like a foundered pony, all kind of tight, but we'll just see. So we hacked her out and came back to your ring and you had someone set fences. And um, at that point, I think you were about 60. Uh, you were getting out of competition and you had taken a step back with this mare to connect with her and were exploring John Lyons, you told me, and some new sort of natural horsemanship, Western horsemanship theories with her. And the jumps went up and up and up. And at one point I was like, okay, I don't know what you want to do here, but I'm sold. And you said, well, you know, this horse isn't going to be the one that is meddling and taking you to the Olympics, but she could get you back on the map again. And she jumps amazingly. But you said, I think maybe she needs that relationship that a, a girl can give her. You know, I, I remember you using a phrase, sort of that kissy relationship where maybe she'll settle more for me. And she initially, she did. I think as the vet's kid, I grew up calming animals in a way that was natural to me that I couldn't pass on. And I liked forward. I um, experimented with, instead of slowing her down, letting her be really forward. And she seemed to gel with me until she didn't, until we really asked too much. We did a, a couple of years of qualifying events, intermediate level events, and she was, she was pretty happy. We talked about, in our conversation earlier, about horses being anxious and the causes of it. And do you remember you got Greg Wilder to work on her body? Yeah, a little bit, but I think a little bit of a backstory. I had bought this mare a couple of years before up in Canada from a guy who had taken her from, I think, training level or novice level to intermediate in one season, I think. And she was the sort of horse that if you put any pressure on her, she would just get really tight. Her, and so it didn't affect her in her jumping phases, but dressage, she was very, very difficult, nervous. She would shorten up in her gates. And I think that, you know, Paige, you and I have talked about it. I think today we would recognize that the mayor had whatever the 
equine equivalent of human PTSD would be. Something had traumatized her. And it may have been pain-related. It may have been emotional scarring, but there was something that it didn't take much to trigger. Mm. And I think that she's a good example of a horse that, you know, what is that saying? I wish I had known then what I know now. Mm -hmm. I think we, we probably could have done a lot better by her today if we had that same horse today. And I think that that is probably a good way to segue into sort of what you've been trying to do is to talk about better methods of training, better methods of schooling, better methods of analyzing horses. So why don't you sort of go on from there and ask any questions that you might have. If this is resonating with you and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our foundation course. Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician making magic with horses. A unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible. So at the end of her career, we, d- we did invest in um, making her more comfortable. Greg Wilder did a bunch of body work on her. I think she had a history as a young horse of flipping over in the gates. I remember a story about that. And she had scar tissue all from between the front legs up over her shoulder and chest. And uh, making her comfortable certainly improved her tension. But then in the end, what got in the way was human ambition. So I wanted to make it back on the team. And as the work increased, and I think her comfort level in her body couldn't be kept at an acceptable level, she started to fall apart again. So she didn't want to get caught in the field. And neither one of us in the end really wanted to do it anymore. Um, so she was retired, and I just found out a bit about her story. She's, she retired um, to PEI as a broodmare, and they have some offspring of hers there um, that I'm checking out. She had one foal. She was slipping them. She wasn't carrying her foals, so they kept her on Regumate and turned her out with a little um, Arab stallion. So she had uh, an amazing life in the end. But I, I had um, an aha moment. When I was training in the States, so we're relating this a bit to trauma and PTSD and recognizing that trauma and PTSD in this is the same in many ways in horses as it is in humans. And um, I was at a special workshop for trauma therapists with a friend of mine, Carmen Theobald. I'm not a trauma therapist, so I kind of came in sideways and it was a lot of it kind of over my head. And they were talking about how to create a sense of safety and connection for their clients before they could 
help them and really move on. And they were teaching us the science behind connection and using horses to do this, as well as some wearable technology. And the mind blow for me was that we could actually practice creating a sense of safety and connection with people and horses that involved breathing techniques and mindfulness that was measurable. So it was, it was really cool. These ladies, Linda Kohanoff and Rebecca Bailey, had done over 20 years of experiments with horses anecdotally that showed us that when the human wasn't just present, if they just became sort of not mindfully present and in the moment, or if they were incongruent, which means they were, say, wearing a mask, like saying, hey, no, everything's fine, when inside they're dying a little, <laughs> that the horses in freedom would be repelled by them and stay away from them. But as soon as they owned an emotion and became present um, and were congruent, the horses would approach them. And then they studied um, how horses could feel this sort of thing and how any of us can through our energy field. So there's this amazing science that can actually measure human energy fields now that are emitted from our hearts. When we are within close enough proximity to one another, we can feel what someone else is feeling through our energy fields. Each um, one of our emotions has a corresponding wavelength and pattern. And humans can do this too, but horses are specialists at it. So they were using some wearable technology that also could um, measure our neurological state. So we can be in the state of fight, flight, freeze, like PTSD causes us to be. Um, at the point of my life I was taking this workshop, my own nervous system was stuck in PTSD mode. I had a lump growing in my breast and I had just left a, a bad marriage and uh, bankruptcy and all the things. So I was showing up um, with a bunch of psychologists and specialists with some horse experience as the horse expert. And Rebecca Bailey, one of the doctors there, was like, I can't wait to work with you and the horses. You're going to be a rock star. And the horses wouldn't come anywhere near me. So we were playing with these monitors that helped to measure our nervous system state from going from in uh, the state of five alarm fire bell mode to kind of in the blue to in the green. And they can, um, through some exercises and practice, help you get into that head state like athletes get into or performers get into where the magic happens. And in that head state, you regulate your nervous system. Um, everything is working in line and you can co-regulate another being. And as we were practicing this through a pattern of deep in-breath, long, slow out-breath, I recognized a feeling that had long since been lost to me that I used to access while holding horses for my dad as a vet that were traumatized or when I worked with speed axle. And I used to get there by singing and humming and did it kind of accidentally. And so as I practiced this and joined up with the horses in the workshop, I realized that there was an element to feel and connection that I was unaware of before that I used in my life pre-shitstorm and debacle when my nervous system fell apart. 
that I couldn't teach to adult amateurs. Um, and that if I could relearn this, I could also teach it. So now I'm on a mission to help um, the average adult amateur entering the sport who has hit a wall of frustration. They're having a hard time connecting with their horses. Um, maybe they have a hard time deciding which experts to listen to. And everything is kind of mechanical. The dream they had about riding just is not coming true. And I figure if there's a couple of things, if they, A, really understand and get horses, and with horsemanship being kind of a lost art, not passed down generation to generation through clubs anymore, it's hard to access that knowledge. But if they understood how prey animals think and what they need, and then if they could come in to their sessions, leaving their jobs behind and their worries and get into this sort of meditative state, they could connect with the horse and develop that feel. So um, I'm revisiting my past, looking at what I wish I had known then and what I would do differently with horses and kind of owning parts of my story to help others. I was really interested in parts of your story because you've been so beautiful and, and amazing about owning things you would do differently through your books, Know Better to Do Better, Begin uh, and Begin Again, and through your posts on Facebook. Um, so I wondered if you would share some of um, what the turning point was to start doing things differently, and um, also about what it was like to come back from some of your your traumas. So for those of you who don't know, Denny broke his neck and had a serious life-altering injury and had to come back in the saddle again, um, not as strong as he once was. So I'm going to hand the floor over to you, Denny, and let you tell some stories. So you're good at that. Well, you know, I think, I think that the word intensity is probably a key word here because I think that, you know, athletes compete and I think that the better athletes probably bring more intensity. And, you know, you talk about adult amateurs. A lot of them are intense people in their jobs. They're lawyers or bankers or doctors or some type of whatever it is. They probably have a great deal of either competitive drive or whatever it may be. And then they bring that to the horse and a competitor you know, horse sport brings that to the horse. And I don't think horses do very well with intensity. And I think that it's, so there you've got a, you've got kind of a internal contradiction right there. You're supposed to be a good athlete by being more intense. But if you're, a, if you bring intensity to horses, the horses react defensively to that. So part of what, and, you know, I was brought up, I, I was born in 1941, and so when I was 10, which was 1951, and started getting, you know, my pony, first pony, everybody 52 years old or older had been born in the 1800s, and they had grown up at a time when horses were, you know, the car, the truck, the tractor, the way you got to town, the way you did anything, and so it was a very utilitarian way of thinking about horses no it wasn't a relationship it wasn't a partnership it was like my horse is like my car 
for a lot of people. I'm I'm sure there were great horsemen and there must have been same as ever, but but I think in the general person, just a horse with something to use. And so there were all kinds of phrases that I was brought up with. Don't let them get away with that. I got to show that horse who's boss. Um, and it was it was a at least a semi-adversarial relationship. And when you're 10 or 11 and an adult is telling you this stuff, you buy into it. You know, you drink the Kool-Aid. And so for years and years, decades, you know, I was a product of what I was taught as a kid. And if a horse did something wrong, obviously they were being bad. They were, they needed to be corrected. And, and I mean, it took a long time to outgrow that or to, to understand that that was wrong. Um, I don't know whether, you know, you avoided that your father being a vet and you're younger, but it, you know, it certainly pervaded my generation. And when I was competing at the upper levels, horses were treated, you know, you got to jump that ditch. And if you don't, you're in trouble. Um, so a couple of things started to change. I realized that, that my horses were being made to do things. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure this is the right way. And it was a slow evolution page. It wasn't like, oh, instant light bulb. And then I started, I read, one of the things I read was an article about a, a German word, Losgelassenheit. And I don't have the correct translation, but Lassen is loose, height, state of. And it was sort of like the training, correct training is in, and I don't think it was in a state of looseness as much as an absence of tightness. And the point being that a tight horse can be tight physically and it can be tight emotionally. And Losgelassenheit is an absence of that tension. And so if you do something to a horse that makes him nervous, he's not going to learn as well as a horse that is not in a state of tension. And that was like, I had to, you know, it's like read it and then read it again and then think about it and then reapproach it. And I was thinking, well, you know, hell of a lot of what I've done over all these decades is when a horse has not performed the, the way I wanted him to perform, I put more pressure on him to get him to do what I wanted. I ramped up the pressure, the horse got tighter. So I ramped up the pressure, the horse got tighter. So it was the opposite of what I should have been doing, but I didn't know it. So I think that that's one of, that was, that was a big one for me is the, is the idea that there's like a anxiety threshold. And if you think of that anxiety threshold and you think I can train more effectively when I'm below it than when I'm above it. And that means you've got to slow down. And it means you've got to take off the physical pressure. And then you've also got to do things like saddle fit. Is the saddle pinching the horse? Is the bit too tight? You see people with those nose bands crank so tight the horse's noses swell. Um, you see sharp bits, spurs, whips, you know, all the apparatus, draw reins, degogs, bidding rigs, stuff to subdue the horse, to make the horse do what you want. And, you know, when you think about that, every one of them, absolutely contravenes the whole concept of absence of tightness and tension. So when I realized that, and I thought, man, have I been doing it wrong? 
Um, but it's a hard sell, you know, to to explain this to people. Now back to you. My evolution came later than yours. It's a more recent evolution. And I did not escape that uh, mentality as the vet's kid. My dad was the son of a cowboy named Tuffy because he was the roughest, toughest cowboy in the West, essentially, a bronc rider. And often, aside from bringing that mentality of breaking horses, um, I mean, they went out in the morning and they lassoed a horse to ride it. And if they fell off that day while they were out fixing fences or something, that horse ran for home. It didn't stick around, right? And we had one of those poles that you tied horses to, those patience poles. So we would tie our two-year-olds up and um, they would struggle until they didn't struggle anymore. But we were dealing with ranch-bred quarter horses. And they're small and they're bred to give up easy. We want to breed horses to work on a ranch that are compliant uh, and don't have much fight. So our evolution started when we bred our first real performance horse and breeding for eventing, he didn't have an ounce of give up in him. And when we tied him to the post, he broke his neck. So that was part of our rude awakening. I didn't really realize that I was using pressure and, and release in a way that other people couldn't for years because I'm six one and generally around 170 pounds. And so I could always put more leg on and and tell people to push through, you know. So even if we weren't, neither you or I were mean horse trainers, we we didn't get after our horses or beat them, but we we had the Kool-Aid, we drank the Kool-Aid, and it was always more pressure was the answer. But my students couldn't do it, and my adult amateurs in particular, like I just, I couldn't help these beautiful adult amateurs coming from their jobs to make their dreams come true. So now I'm going down the rabbit hole, a little late to the game, but looking at um, liberty training and and what can be done. I rode for a while through chemo, bareback and bridleless. Looking back, it maybe wasn't the best time to do that. I, I fell off more often in that sort of year through chemo and recovery than I did in, I think, my whole career. Um, but I was um, very conscious of giving that horse a choice and some, some freedom and learned a lot about myself and how I wasn't present, even though it was something I wanted to teach. And he would show me that sometimes by knocking me off under branches, definitely on purpose, <laughs> on our rides. So I, I'm hyper aware of this now that if more pressure doesn't work and, a, and not everyone is six foot one and an Amazonian that can push a horse through, then what is it that we do? And um, examining what people like Tick Maynard do in liberty work is really interesting to me. And also owning that when I got really weak after the chemo, there were things in the saddle that I couldn't do anymore. I'd always done since I was a kid and couldn't understand why others couldn't do. So I, I'm approaching it as I get ready to ride again. I had another wreck about a year ago. A year ago to the day, I had a really bad wreck just post-chemo and getting strong again. And I thought I was strong enough to ride and train other horses. And right from the mounting block, a young horse sent me flying. 
And so I'm coming back now getting ready to ride again, but wanting to build up my core before I do. Um, it was a pretty rude awakening not to be able to hold two point or post and balance with a horse without using a neck strap and stuff. Um, how, how was it for you coming back off your broken neck? Um, how long were you debilitated for and how did that affect your strength and how you approached getting back in the tack? Yeah, when I was 70, I was riding in a little novice event at Stonely Burnham and the horse stopped at a ditch, did one of those canter canter bang with the front feet and his head went right down like there. And I went shooting straight over his head, landed at first against the back portion of the ditch and broke my neck. And it, it was the kind of fall that Chris Reeve had, but it didn't displace the whatever you know that little ring of bones in my neck but it broke it and so i was in a halo for months and a halo they screw it to your head it's like this and then you have a board in front and a board in back and you're it's it's claustrophobic it's painful it's you have these headaches all the time i mean you're really down and out it's not like having cancer but it's it's not something i would recommend that somebody do. Um, and when you finally come out of it, you know, you've been sitting, lying for months. And so you're very weak. And, and like you, I, I thought, you know, a lot of the things that I'd had just taken for granted all those years suddenly weren't there. You know, the, this, I was, I couldn't, couldn't do anything. And so it's a very long, slow process, but you know, what it does is it calms you down in a way if you let it if you know you think okay well this is just reality this has happened um i've got to get if i want to come back i've got to do it carefully i've got to do it slowly and then i sort of thought you you know horses are the same way as me i mean you take a horse they're not a fit athlete right they're just a horse and people just because they're big and strong, much stronger than humans, we just assume they can do all this stuff. And I think a lot of what I realized I couldn't do, horses can't do either until you make it, till you put in the long hours of walking and just slow work to give them a, a base of strength. Because I think tons of what we call resistance is fatigue. You know, it's very easy to make a horse tired. And so what happens is, you know, we ride a horse, the horse gets tired, starts to lean on our hands or not carry himself or do whatever. And we think, oh, this horse is disobeying me. He's being, he's being a bad horse. And well, he's getting tired. And so now you grind on him more. Now he gets tired or so. So much of what people's normal responses are, are incorrect. Um, and again, as I say, it's, it's a hard sell because people have this, you know, I think you're talking about adult amateurs. Adult amateurs have very often come to horses with a little bit of that pony dream. You know, this is my pony. It loves me. I love it. And they don't realize that it's a, it's an organism and it needs to be made strong enough to do something. And then it has to be taught how to do it, not made how to do it, taught how to do it. 
total segue page, but one of the things that I also was kind of a revelation to me was reading about how when Helen Keller, you know, who was born blind and deaf, was taught how they created a new language for Helen Keller, the person who broke through to, and we teach human children well, if they're going to learn to read, we don't start with having them read. We start with the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We teach them that. And then we have little tiny words. And then we have strings of words. And so, you know, when you're teaching a horse, a horse doesn't know what go forward, turn right, turn left, stop, you know, means. We can kick them to make them go and yank on them to make them stop, the 1950s version. Or we can put a little pressure on they walk forward, slight pressure. The minute they soften, release, thank you. And we can teach so that aids, the word aids, are communications. And we have to create a whole system of communicating with the horse. So um, that's, that, was a big, that was a big change in my whole approach to this thing. And so it's a slow system with horses. They have, they have to have time to understand that this pressure means this word, so to speak. Mm -hmm. If you were to give someone advice when they're looking to hire someone and showing up at a barn watching lessons and watching the local pro ride, what sort of things would you want them to see or take away in terms of feel? Lack of drama. Yes. You know, absence of drama quiet. It's quiet. You know, people that get along with horses are quiet with horses, I think, don't you? Definitely. They don't yank them. They don't jerk them. They don't shout at them. They don't. It's a, it's a calmness, a quietness that mm -hmm. I think horses respond to. And I think some of the flamboyant in your face, you know, look at me, how great I am. You know, that's what I would avoid. Mm-hmm. Ego in the horse world gets really ugly, Ego. doesn't it? Can you tell us how it feels different when you're approaching riding now compared to the old days and kind of some of the changes you have embraced? Well, one just simple mechanical one, a much longer, slower warm-up. You know, I, I get on and I just go for a walk. And if I'm in the indoor ring, I go for a walk on a loose rein in the indoor ring in the winter, you know. I don't get on pick up the reins and say, start performing. And I allow the horse the time to sort of loosen up, get used to the fact it's almost like an interim period between sitting in the stall or in the pasture and being worked. I give them that minimum, rock bottom minimum of 10 minutes, probably more like 15 or 20 to sort of just quietly start loosening, walking. And then when I pick up the reins, I don't pick them up. I shorten them a little bit. And then I put a little leg and maybe bend them a little bit right and a little bit left and stretch his neck down. And, you know, and then when I trot, I just let the horse find his own rhythm and I gradually bring him into a connection. And then at a certain point, I work and then gently with breaks and then I'm done, you know. And it 
first, it seems like it's a very tedious way to do it. But over time, what happens is you find the horses coming along, you know, it's making haste by going slow um, and being very, very careful not to, I, I, I used to get aggravated and I never do anymore. I, I really don't. I, if I don't allow myself to go there to get frustrated, if it isn't going well, I just don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Big change. I noticed so many pictures from between the ears. You're out in the country a lot too. Do you hack out more or do more training while out on the trails? Not really necessarily. Um, I've always hacked out, but then when I would work them, they would by God work. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that um, everything was just a little too much. A couple of years ago, Stacy Westfall stopped here on her way home from Maine. And um, she does that, all that liberty to rides them with bridalists, you know. And she was saying, you know, when she was a kid, she had a lot of joy in her riding. And then when she got into the business, it became a business. And she said she had all the things she'd always dreamed of having, but she would cry herself to sleep every night. And she realized that she was missing was the joy of just connecting with the horse as a friend. And I think a lot of people have an agenda. And, you know, these adult amateurs, I am going to learn how to ride. And, yeah, you got to have an agenda, but, boy, you got to be careful that the agenda doesn't own you. Mm, Yeah. I think you have shown us so many ways we can enjoy being around horses, riding, driving, Western, English, polo. I mean, there's, there's so many ways. And just on the ground, painting them, writing about them. You don't have to even have a horse to be involved. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I noticed that I think keeps your horses happy that isn't necessarily industry standard is that uh, I believe your horses live outside, do they not? Yeah, all the time. You're a Vermonter. Do they live outside in winter? They do. Yeah. That's awesome. Ten below zero. The only time I bring them in is if, if it's going to really blow and be like bitterly cold overnight. Mm-hmm. I think they were in seven or eight days all winter, one at night, then they go back out. Yeah, it's cold. But, you know, they get heavy coats and they we put blankets on them. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're horses. Um, they're not. Yeah, I bring that up because I, I think that living naturally in a herd is so important. And people assume if they want to show and train that their horses can't do that anymore and they need to live alone and in these tiny paddocks if they're lucky to get out all by themselves. And I know from even 20 years ago back at your place, your horses all went out in small groups and had the chance to be in herds. And I think that people need to know that that's possible, even when you are competitive. Yeah. Is uh, there anything else about the nature of horses that um, you think we should take into account? You know, you talked about the quarter horses being a breed that was basically bred to be to be sub- not submissive, but easy to get along with. And I think that there are breeds like the thoroughbred that have been bred to be very competitive. You know, they, they don't breed a thoroughbred to ride it. They breed a thoroughbred to race it. And I think you just have to take more time, more time, more time, just quiet, quiet, quiet. I mean, just don't 
be forceful and don't be in a hurry. You know, that line, anxiety threshold, you know, you're going to cross it sometimes, but try not to live there. And I used to live there. I think you did. I think, you know, the USET lives there. Those horses are performing athletes. And, and I think that that was a mistake. I mean, I think some of the sports, I mean, at the upper levels of some of these sports, I, I don't think it's right. I, th I mean, in, in retrospect, I think that we put the horses under immense pressure and they either perform or they get in trouble. And I'm not going to get into that. There's um, one rule of horsemanship that I learned from my dad that he actually learned from a chuck wagon racer. And it is um, based on the horse's instinct as a prey animal to run from danger. And he said, never holler woe in a tight spot. And that one, I think, has never let me down. When I have clamped down on a horse and prevented forward movement, whether that's holding them for an x-ray or something they have to stand still for, or um, hitting the brakes when a horse is nervous, or, or riding with, with too much checking in front of a fence, um, never hollering woe in a tight spot has never let me down. And I wondered if you had yeah. any examples of either when that concept has worked for you or, or not, if you have ignored it to your peril. Well, you know, in a lot of the hacking that I do, it's pretty steep here in Vermont. And I try to leave the reins as much alone as I can and let the horse figure out how not to trip and fall down. Um, because a horse, you know, can carry itself fine without a rider on its back. And so if you can get them to be able to carry themselves fine with a rider, I think that instead of trying to micromanage everything, people are great micromanagers. People love, they have that instinct to use your hands to do things. Think of all the things you do every day with your hands, right? So now you're on a horse, what's the most instinctive thing to do if you're, you use the reins to create whatever. And um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's tricky. I was thinking, you know, that Maya Angelou saying, or, you know, I get the title of my book from that. You don't know what you don't know. So you do it a certain way. And then as you start to learn better ways, you do better mm -hmm. and know better to do better. And so I think that if you are an adult amateur, a kid, somebody who has not had a lot of experience with horses, or like you and I have had a lot of experience, but not always doing it correctly, try to figure out what is a better way. Mm -hmm. I think that the biggest key is that if you put a horse under intense pressure, that horse is probably going to try, like you're saying, get away from that pressure. And you have to just learn how to get something a little bit, soften up, get a little more, soften up, and try to leave every day's school, every day's ride with a horse that is not nervous or tight or fried or in any way, you know, you can be tired, like you'd be tired coming home from a long hike, but it shouldn't be frazzled. Mm. And, um, and I don't think my horses nowadays that I ride them are ever very frazzled. And I think, yeah, you know, like talk about something I wish I'd known earlier right there. Don't go into that zone where you're putting all that pressure on those horses.
Mm-hmm. Um, but people are intense and they are going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, it's, it's hard to convince people to mm-hmm. soften up and lighten up. But I think if they did, if they can figure it out, they'll do a better job with their horses. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this. I want to point out that riding for sure, anything horse-related is a lifelong learning endeavor, and you're a perfect example of that. And I thank you for being an example of change because it's not always easy to own. It's a vulnerable thing to do. And I think by owning our own stories and making changes, we can maybe inspire others. So thanks for inspiring so many people and, and writing and sharing so much, Denny. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft, where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, we all want the same things, to be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance.